You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. How many of you guys uh, did something for Valentine's Day on Friday? Anyone? A few folks? Okay, guys, you should all be raising your hands. Okay, so Valentine's Day, it's last Friday. It's just kind of like one of those things that happens in America. It's like, where did this thing come from? Why do we all buy like these heart-shaped box of chocolates and these balloons and these flat? Like, what, what, what is all this? Where did this even come from? And so, you know, I, I went through the whole deal, got the flowers, got the chocolates, all that. I'm also writing a sermon this week. And I just was like, well, I just want to look a little bit more of, of Valentine's Day. Where did this come from? And it turns out St. Valentine uh, was, a, was a Christian, a follower of Jesus back in the third century. And St. Valentine was very committed, was passionately committed to marriage. Uh, he just saw this as such a beautiful reflection of what the church and Jesus' relationship looked like. So for him to, to follow Jesus, to, uh, to live out the gospel, was to, to really highlight and promote marriage in the Roman Empire. Only one problem, though. Uh, the Emperor Claudius at the time believed that single men made better soldiers. So he was constantly opposing and against what St. Valentine was doing. And as that was going about, it finally came to a head where Claudius came, the Emperor Claudius came and persecuted St. Valentine, and in the year 270 AD had him executed. So you're welcome. Think about that next year when you buy a box of chocolates. Very romantic, I know. So, but you know, it's just one of those things that it's a story, it's a moment of persecution, and you think to yourself, well, surely that kind of stuff doesn't necessarily happen today, does it? Like, that was a long time ago. That's when people were less civilized. That's when they didn't brush their teeth. That's in the history books. That was a long, long time ago. Or maybe it happens far, far away in a place not at all like Ellis County, Texas. But if you thought that, you would be wrong. In fact, there were more Christians persecuted for their faith, killed for their faith last year than any year on record before that. We don't hear about it as much, though. We don't hear that in the last 20 years, particularly the population of Christians in Iraq has gone from 1.5 million down to 200,000. We don't hear about how the population of Christians in Egypt has gone from 3 to 4 million down to a couple hundred thousand over the last 15 to 20 years. We don't hear those stories. And in some ways, they don't necessarily resonate with us. When we come to this beatitude that we're looking at today where Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted, we tend to put it in a small category of physical pain and suffering and maybe loss of life. And we look at it and say, that's not necessarily for me. But I think we'd be remiss of that. Just because our persecution might not manifest itself as physical suffering or harm for following Jesus doesn't mean whatsoever that you aren't experiencing persecution. In fact, Jesus' application in this beatitude is wide-ranging, and that's why he actually even expounds on it for us today. In fact, some of us in this room, you will experience persecution in all sorts of ways if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. You might experience it in a loss of a relationship. You might experience it in a loss of a position, maybe something at work. Maybe you don't buy into the values and the beliefs and the practices of your work environment, and it ends up costing you. You might experience it in your pride, being misunderstood or forgotten about or rejected. You might experience it even in your family. As you begin to follow Jesus and trust him more, you experience all sorts of sideways looks, defensiveness, and frustrations. 
Persecution shows up in all these different ways, and that's what Jesus is really wanting us to get at. He's closing out his Beatitudes, as we've been looking at them for a number of months. We, we took a pause at the end of last year, and we're picking up the last one today. But these Beatitudes, I mean, really what it means is the blessings. What Jesus is basically saying, here's how to have your blessed life now. If you want to have the happy life, if you want to have the blessed life, if you want to talk to the guy, not Dr. Phil or Oprah, but if you want to talk to the guy who actually made life, who designed life, he's going to tell you this is what life is all about. Who in here wouldn't want to say, I want to find out about what the blessed life looks like, and I want to find out what the happy life looks like. Here's the thing, though. When we come to these Beatitudes, they're very countercultural. Not in a way of like, I got a tattoo and had a midlife crisis, but they're countercultural in the sense of like, hey, there is a way that I'm going to live out that the world looks at and doesn't get whatsoever. In fact, there's this great degree of hesitation, and even you're going to experience all sorts of ridicule and persecution if you try to follow these Beatitudes. And so this last Beatitude, let's read it together. It says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's the beatitude. And then Jesus, this is the only beatitude that he gives some fuller explanation for, a fuller content. This is what he says in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, what's really interesting to me, this is not exactly how I would expect the Beatitudes to close out. In fact, I had a hard time just this week sitting with this text and figuring out why is Jesus closing out the Beatitudes in this form or fashion? I mean, he just gets done listing all these different behaviors like practice mercy, be meek, seek after righteousness, be willing to forgive, love people that are far from God, walk in poorness and humility of spirit. I mean, all these, and you expect him to say, and if you do this, if you do these things, then people will think you're awesome. They'll give you a gold star. People will give you a high five for being spiritually enlightened. You think that's what it would actually close out, but, but it's not. In fact, Jesus says the opposite. In some ways, he's bringing it to a conclusion. He's saying, if you practice all these beatitudes, here's actually what's going to result. Persecution, misunderstanding, insult, being reviled. That's not the conclusion you would necessarily draw or the one that our appetites, our flesh, naturally are really comfortable with. But yet that's what he wraps it up with. And there are three truths about persecution that I think we all need to see that I want us to expound upon this morning that we see in this beatitude of blessed are the persecuted. Truth number one is this, is that persecution is to be expected. Truth number two is persecution has a purpose. And truth number three is that persecution is for our great gladness. So those are our three truths that I want us to see in this text this morning about persecution. And now, once again, if you're anything like me, when you come to this beatitude, this is the one that we struggle with unbelief on, right? We really say, okay, blessed, I'm blessed, I should rejoice when I experience persecution. Is that, is that really what you want me to get down into the marrows of my soul? Like viscerally, I don't know if I'm buying into that, that that really is a blessed, that's a happy life place to be. Or what we can do is we can kind of subtly and in a, in a crafty way push this into the category of, well, this is for super Christians. This is for missionary Christians. This is for Christians that have like seven kids and named them all after minor prophets. Like this is for Christians on the missions field. This is for Christians that are far, 
far out there reaching people that are hostile to the gospel. And it's so easy to kind of put it into that category. But once again, verse 11, Jesus does not let us do that. Once again, look at that. He says, blessed are you. And he said, it's not an if. It's not an if others revile and persecute you, but it's a when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Friends, this is not a a conditional statement. This is not a, a possible statement. This is an absolute. Jesus is bringing all of his weight the same way that if you jump off a building, you will experience gravity. If you become a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will experience persecution. It is the inevitable result of being a Christ follower. And if you're going to be faithful to the teaching of the New Testament, you have to come to grips with this. In fact, we don't do people any favors, especially in churches, when we give people any type of illusion that if you follow Jesus, your life will get better or your life will get easier. In fact, Jesus is usually pointing people to the fact that if you follow me, trouble is what you're going to get. But you'll also get his presence. You'll also get him. We'll get to that later on. But here's what, if we're just looking at what the New Testament says, we're going to be faithful to it. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't have like, oh my gosh, type face at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Something strange is not happening. Jesus told you to expect this suffering, this persecution. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, Paul's not, he's not being, he's not exaggerating for effect there. When he says all, he means all. He means all Christians. This is you and me. This is everyone who's trusting in the name of Jesus. This is everyone who wants to follow after Jesus. This is everyone who wants to enjoy Jesus. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, persecution will be inevitable. And Jesus makes this same point again in John chapter 15, verse 20. He says this. He says, remember what I told you. Church, he's speaking to us. Remember this. We can't forget this. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And all of us, friends, if we are followers of Jesus, we are not greater than our master. And if he suffered persecution and insult and being reviled and mocked and scorned, then surely you and I will as well. If you're like me, though, um, as I wrestled with this passage, this beatitude this week, there's a little bit of a tendency to go like, I don't feel like I'm experiencing that much persecution. I don't feel like that necessarily is my reality. And, you know, there, there's something, too, that I think, especially, once again, if we want to just farm this out and think this is in far hard-to-reach places in the world, we're missing something. In fact, I think there are some reasons that we really need to be cautious and concerned about when we are not experiencing the inevitability of persecution, In fact, let me give you three reasons that I think we should all be concerned about when we are not experiencing persecution. First is what I would just call the bubble Christian. This is the Christian that has found a way to Christianize their entire life. You've got your Christian home group, you've got your Christian church, you've got a Christian Bible study, you've got Christian concerts and music and coffee mugs, and you name it. It's, It's all Christian. And what you've done is you've made the mistake or you've bought into the notion that sin and evil and all the bad is out there. And if I can just insulate and wall myself off, me and my family, in our nice designer home with our nice designer lives, with our nice designer friends, then none of the bad icky stuff will get on me. 
me. And my, the whole goal why Jesus saved me was to withdraw me from the world. But friends, this is not why Jesus saves you. In fact, Jesus saves you not that you'd be in the, of the world, but that you'd be in the world still. That you would be a blessing to those who are far from God. And so when we bubble our life, when we quarantine our life, when we close our life off, it really reflects a posture that we're afraid of the world, that we think the world out there is bad or irredeemable, that the Lord doesn't want us in it or being good missionaries to it. And so it might just be that you live in a bit of a bubble. That's why you're not experiencing any persecution or insult. In fact, it just is a good diagnostic question. If you haven't experienced someone being bewildered or confused or even a little bit patronizing or insulting toward your faith, do you really know people that don't share your faith? Number two, maybe you're suffering persecution because you're a silent Christian, because you're a silent Christian. In other words, you believe in Christ, but you don't want to speak up about him. You've got a deep burning in your bosom. You love the Lord. You've got your quiet time. But in the break room, if you've got your Bible open and someone else comes in, you're closing that bad boy up. Or if there's a conversation going on among your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors or whoever, and it happens to go toward Jesus and God and, 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 and the Bible and church and all that, you're going to shrink back a little bit. You're going to be silent. Jesus knew that this was something deep inside all of us that we struggle with, and he spoke to this in Matthew chapter 10. In fact, he said this, if you confess me before men, if you're willing to speak the truth about who I am and that you're a follower of me, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. See, friends, it is absolutely essential that we speak up, that we are willing to look like fools at times and even be misunderstood or mocked or insulted so that the name of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, is proclaimed and shared with the world around us, even if they don't understand. And I don't know about you, this is one that I, I can definitely struggle with. I define myself repenting of this a little bit this week. I have some fears. This might be one of my bigger fears. You know, it's, it's, it's probably right up there with, like, spiders and, like, craft stores. I'm really afraid of those, those places. Just don't get me started. Um, but this is a fear of mine. Like, I don't like to look silly. I don't like to be misunderstood. I don't like to be seen as backward or intolerant or bigoted. I don't like any of those things. And when they happen, man, they hurt. They hurt my pride, but you know what? I, I, I have to come back to you and say, I'm willing to look like a fool for Jesus knowing that I should not be silent or shrink from these moments. In fact, the church has often gotten in trouble, entire churches and denominations, when they compromise or they go silent on the truth of the gospel in order to appease or gain favor with the watching world. In fact, entire denominations over the last 150 years, if you just look at American churches and denominations over the last 150 years, I won't name names, but what they've done along the way is often make slow, subtle compromises about doctrine and who Jesus really is in hopes that if they do so, they'll just get a seat at the cool kid's table of culture. And guess what? Culture will never find Jesus cool. No matter how much we try to compromise or appease or water it down or be silent about who Jesus really is and his claims of exclusivity and divinity. And the last one, and this is another one I think someone would just fall in. Maybe you're not a bubble Christian or a silent Christian. Maybe you're a blended Christian. Maybe you're blended. You got a little bit of the world and you got a little bit of Jesus. Maybe you just got like a dusting of Jesus, just a sprinkling of Jesus, enough to keep you out of prison, enough to keep you from like doing a whole bunch of bad things. 
but you don't necessarily want to go all in. You don't want to get crazy about this Jesus thing, do you? You really don't want to let Jesus have his entire way with your life. But you know what? If he can kind of civilize my kids, if he can keep my marriage on the right track, if he can keep my job going good, then great. I'll buy in. I might even go to a group. I might even like, you know, serve and give and do some, you know, religious type stuff. But I don't want a full-blown outbreak of this Jesus thing where people start looking at me strange, where they start watching me, where I start speaking up and proclaiming and pressing into people. You know, I just think about, for uh, my own sake, I do a lot of premarital counseling. It's really funny when you f- see engaged couples, they're still like got that infatuation thing going on. And it's funny, often couples as they get older and maybe a little bit more cynical or stuff like that, they can look at the infatuation couple and go like, gosh, like why you guys got to be so madly in love? Like knock it off, like quit it. But in reality, like in some ways it's condemning, isn't it? Their infatuation, their love, their enjoyment, their excitement, their passion for one another can actually be a slight sense of conviction that you feel like, well, why... Why would I have that same feeling? But it can be one of those things that's definitely, that speaks up. And I think the same thing for Jesus. Would anyone look at you and go like, gosh, there's just so much affection and passion and joy when you speak of Jesus. So these are things for us all to consider. These are things for us to to, to realize that if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, persecution is to be expected. People will revile you. People will mock you. People will insult you. But is this all for Jesus is just laughter and enjoyment? No. In fact, there is a reason for your persecution. There's a reason for your persecution. This is truth number two. The reason for your persecution is exactly what Jesus says in verse 11. For righteousness' sake. Sorry, verse 10. For righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. So he's, he's giving us a reason. He's giving us a qualifier. What he's not saying is that, hey, anytime you experience suffering or hardship, it's clearly because of persecution. In fact, what I'd say is too often some of us can get into a place where we chalk up all bad things to persecution. And you develop a little bit almost of a persecution complex. In fact, I want to give you three things that are not persecution, okay? Um, three things. One, um, we just live in a broken world. Sometimes you're going to get a flat tire. Sometimes you won't get the front spot at Kroger. Sometimes the water heater's just going to break. Sometimes there's just going to be hardships in your relationships. And sometimes, actually, that's a part of your sin, which is another thing that's not necessarily persecution. In fact, the book of Proverbs speaks exhaustively on the cause and effect reality of us experiencing suffering because of our sin. And when you're experiencing the suffering of your sin, that isn't necessarily persecution. When your boss doesn't promote you because you're lazy, he's not persecuting you. When you get a, when you get a speeding ticket, it might be because you were actually, I don't know, speeding. The cop's not persecuting you. Uh, when you don't pass your test, it's not because your professor hates you. It might be because you didn't study. So all of these things, there's plenty of room for your own sin inside of that that isn't necessarily persecution. And the last one that I think the church has wrestled with in some incredible ways throughout a 2,000 years, and I don't have time to completely extensively unpack it this morning, but I think it's really pertinent for us, is that persecution, and you hear this, I want to say this as clearly as I can, persecution is also not the, the loss of political power and cultural influence. In the U.S., many of us often have begun to hold our political views in the category of theological convictions. And in the U.S. too, as our culture continues to change and we experience the death of Christendom, and Christendom really just means a privileged place of Christian beliefs and values and ethics, 
in a, in a cultural setting, as that begins to die and wane, that is not necessarily persecution. In fact, what I'd say for us is notice this beatitude doesn't say, blessed are those who lose political power or cultural influence. The church has always thrived and done its best, not when it has a position of privilege and power and influence in the culture, but rather from the margins. So as the culture continues to change on us, we should see it as an opportunity, not persecution. And this is what I'd say, too. One thing that happens when we begin to intertwine so extensively our political positions, when I'm not even getting into the, whether those are right or wrong. In fact, have those arguments on their merits alone. But when we enmesh those so tightly, we actually cheapen the message of Jesus Christ. Do you guys, I mean, stop and pause for a second and think about what Jesus was actually saying when he preached on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is so much more cosmic and extensive and expansive than any country or nation will ever be. The kingdom of God goes across all times and all periods and all history and all tribes and tongues and nations. And the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ that cannot be thwarted and that cannot be stopped. And when we reduce it down to a preferred political reality, we cheapen the extent of the mission of Jesus Christ. And last thing I'll say on that, I think a lot of us will be surprised when we talk to Jesus one day to find out that he was way too liberal for most conservatives and way too conservative for most liberals. You try to put him in a political party and you're just going to find yourself frustrated. But notice what Jesus is calling that righteousness sake. Notice what he's trying to get at. Okay, this is, what, this is super important for us. What he's getting at is righteousness sake is really shorthand for being a follower of Jesus, a faithful follower of Jesus. Basically someone who's willing to say in faith, because this doesn't make sense and what you're saying is completely upside down and countercultural, I'm going to live out these beatitudes. Those beatitudes, I'm going to practice them even as the world scoffs and mocks me and laughs me. Because the world's going to say, you think that's the blessed life? No, the blessed life is get what you can, why you can get it, no matter who it costs or what it costs. You only live once. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is the blessed life. And so Jesus is going to say, if you're going to live out the blessed life, you will experience blowback come up on the screen for you, but John chapter 15, verse 18, this is what Jesus says, and this is so important. He's, he's giving us some context for this righteousness sake and the why of it, the, the why the persecution actually comes. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. World here is just, it's kind of shorthand. It's Jesus saying in summation, if you were to take the, 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 the value system, the collective impulses, the collective beliefs, the value system of the world and, 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 and all that it represents of uh, basically get it, look out for you, protect you, go after what you want, do your thing, you're an individual, you're your own God, you can make all your own decisions, you know the most, all that, that's the world. And he's saying, that world, if it hated you, keep in mind, it hated me first. It opposes the kingdom of God, the reign of God, and the things of God. And if the world hated you, remind yourself it hated me first. And then this is what he says in verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as you are. So as long as you're in lockstep with the world, as long as you're operating within the value systems and the beliefs of the world, the world will affirm you. The world will love you. The world will celebrate you. It's when you step out of alignment that the trouble really begins. And Jesus says, as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. That's why the world hates you. 
Now, once again, our posture is not wall ourselves off from the world, make a bubble reality, but our posture is to redeem and serve the world. But how do we do that? First, not need the approval of the world so that we can live in the world, but we're not of the world. And what does he mean by hate there? Hate's an interesting word. What he's basically saying is there's a strong opposition. If you're a football fan, think of like the Heisman pose. There's a stiff arm. And when the world looks at the beatitude, when it looks at these values, when it looks at this way of living, there's a strong stiff arm of saying that truly is not the blessed life. Don't believe that. Don't buy into that. That's a sucker's bet. And when you do that, when you live out these beatitudes, you can sure bet you will experience blowback from the world. And here's why. Like, have you ever been out in your yard and there's like a big boulder and you lift it up and underneath there's like all these little bugs that go scampering and, you know, fluttering about? What you're really seeing in that moment is what, what John, the author of, of, of the Gospel of John and First John, talks about lightness coming into the dark. And when lightness goes into the dark, it has a way of exposing. And what's being exposed and has been hidden in the dark scurries and scampers because it hates the light. It hates the light. And so when you live out these beatitudes, you will surely face opposition. You will face a stiff arm. This is, this, think about it this way. If you were to live out the beatitude of being poor in spirit, you will expose pride of those around you. If you're to mourn your sin, it will expose the self-righteousness of those around you. If you are meek, you will expose the selfish desire of power around you. If you're merciful, you will expose the injustices in the world around you. If you're pure, you will often be seen as a prude. If you're a peacemaker, you will reveal the anger and wrath of both the peace fakers and the peace breakers around you. These are the values of our world. And when you live them out, when you follow Jesus, which you should because it's the best thing in the world, it's awesome. But you will face opposition you will face strife and blowback. We have to see that. I don't know about you guys, but I've faced some of those moments in my life. I haven't necessarily suffered physically from my face, but I've faced loss of relationship. I've faced ridicule. I've faced insults. I've faced the kind of like, I, I love you, but can you keep that Jesus thing kind of blended or quarantined off or don't get too serious about that? Because at a certain point, your, your new beliefs and that way of living, those, that beatitude-type living is beginning to convict me or make me defensive or make me frustrated. And so how do we become the kind of people that are okay with that? How do we become the kind of people that are willing to absorb the insults and the mockery and the revilement? How do we do that? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. In fact, he says something that, once again, unless he's the God of the universe, this makes no sense whatsoever. He actually says that we can be glad in our persecution, and that's our third truth. You can be glad. In fact, there's a great gladness in your persecution. He says, rejoice and be glad. And if you look in the original language there, 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 there's an amplifier. That's why he says, rejoice and be glad. It's almost like an exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. How can I amplify the type of gladness? It's not just a general gladness like, hey, I had a really good Chipotle burrito. It's a, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm being persecuted. It's that kind of gladness. He's wanting us to realize this is an exceptional kind of gladness. Reason number one why we can rejoice in our persecution is that our persecution unites us more deeply with Jesus. 
Now, we are a church, we love to passionately tell people we want us to enjoy Jesus, we all want more of Jesus, we want to connect with Jesus, we want to have unity and communion that's deep and rich and meaningful with Jesus. And yet one of the ways that, as you look at the the writings of the apostles, you see time and time again, there is a particular intimacy and enjoyment of Jesus that solely comes from suffering and persecution. So if we want to go to the deepest depths of experiencing and knowing God, we can't be afraid of those places of suffering and persecution. The Apostle Paul, who was no stranger whatsoever to suffering and persecution, this is what he said in Philippians 3, and it starts off amazing, and then it gets real. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I want to know Christ, and every one of us would be like, yes and amen, I want to know Christ. Then he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. We'd say once again, yes and amen, I totally want to know the power of his resurrection. If there's resurrection power out there, if there's a power that can raise things from the dead, then I'm all in on that type of power. But then he tells us the how. He says, and participation in his sufferings, becoming more like him in his death. So what Jesus is saying, what what Paul's reminding of us actually there, what Paul's reminding us is that if you want the resurrected power, if you want the resurrected life, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to see heaven set before you, then you can't be afraid of the sufferings and the death that come before the resurrected life. Jesus did not skip the grave. He went from Calvary to the grave to ascension. And so often in life, we just want to skip right by that. We want to go right from from like the, the incarnated Jesus right to the ascended Jesus. And we got to realize that there's a Calvary Jesus in you and I as we're united in Christ. I love the worship hymn that says, our life is hid with Christ on high. And if my life is hid with Christ on high, that means in his life, I have my life, I have my death, I have my sufferings, I have my ridicules, I have my mockery. I have all of that along with a resurrected new life. And friends, you need to realize too that in your persecution. When you experience those moments of persecution, we actually here's why you should celebrate too, because it, it's, it's a testimony, it's a validation, it's a, it's a proof that you are a follower of Jesus. It's a proof that you are a follower of Jesus. In it, you can know that if you're persecuted, persecuted for the sake of your king, then you are a child of the king. This is a great assurance that you can know that if the world hates you, it hated your master. And if the world turned his back on him, then they're going to turn their back on you. But what I love about Jesus is that's not his stiff arm posture toward the world. In fact, another reason we can rejoice and be glad in our persecution is it connects us. It connects us with church, the church, uh, it connects us with church history and advances the mission. It connects us with church history and advances the mission. Uh, You and I live in a very abnormal, unique moment in church history where persecution in a physical sense is not nearly as common as it used to be. But in fact, if you look at church history, even the Puritans, the original pilgrims that came to the United States, they did it because they were fleeing persecution. And look at the advancement of the gospel that going to the ends of the earth because of persecution, even taking pilgrims four or five hundred years ago out of their place to here and you and I are. You and I are actually a result. Our, our, our being in the room this morning is actually part of that story. 
And you and I, we, we find ourselves with a great sense of like uh, encouragement and reminder that heaven is cheering us on, that we stand in a great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews tells us, because we are being persecuted. They're actually rooting for you. They're saying, it's your turn at bat. You get one shot at life, you get one turn, and you're doing all you can to glorify Jesus. And they're rooting and cheering for you in those moments. In fact, the very first martyr in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, Stephen, he was killed for his faith. And and you know what's interesting about that little section of scripture is the apostle Paul, who was known as Saul then, he's there. And in, in large part, he's probably orchestrating it. And to think for him, in that moment, he sees the church scattered because of Stephen's martyred death. And then Paul has this this moment where he becomes converted. And I guarantee you, the rest of his life, the impact of what he saw that day, the persecution that Stephen was willing to suffer, had a dramatic effect on the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. Hebrews 11 reminds us, too, that that, that the saints have always struggled, that the saints have always experienced persecution, that followers of Jesus, and this is why Jesus even says the Old Testament prophets, before you think of the Old Testament prophets, if you want to read them sometimes, uh, let me tell you, it's it's not for the faint of heart. Read Jeremiah. Read Habakkuk. Read the story of Daniel. Do you, do you think these guys were often brought into town and everyone pulled up a seat and said, gosh, tell us your pithy pieces of wisdom and we want to hear all that you have to say? No, usually they were met with scorn and, 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 and physical violence and insults and mockery. It's always been the way of kingdom expansion. And we see that. Just think of that. Paul, who was no stranger to that very reality as well, he always saw his sufferings and his afflictions as an advancement of the gospel. And so friends, here's the question for you when you think about that. Are you willing to absorb some offenses for the advancement of the gospel? Are you willing to like look at your sufferings and those moments when you're insulted or those moments where you're mocked or those moments where you're misunderstood and say, none of these moments are wasted in the economy and the mission expanse of Jesus Christ. They're just not. God doesn't waste those moments. Your persecution could possibly be the very thing that propels someone else into relationship with him. And when we shrink back, when we shrivel from those moments, we in some ways forfeit our turn at at, at our missional opportunity. We get one shot, friends. We get one opportunity to be faithful followers of Jesus, to not shrink back from those moments. And last thing, number three, the reason we can rejoice And this is huge, friends, and none of the Beatitudes make sense unless you get this, okay? This world is not all that there is. In fact, look back at verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For the believer, for the Christian who lives out these Beatitudes, this world is not your end. This is not all there is. This is not your home. These beatitudes, this this being willing to be persecuted makes zero sense if this world is all there is. But for you, that's not all there is. And if you're willing to be misunderstood so that you can be embraced by your father later, isn't that a deal? If you're willing to be insulted and mocked so that one day you can stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, isn't that worth it? If you're willing to suffer a loss of prestige or position so that one day you can rule and reign in the heavens with King Jesus, isn't that worth it? 
for the Christian, all the sorrows of this world won't be worth one hour of heaven's joy. I don't know about you, uh, I got to the end of these Beatitudes and I just found myself going like, Lord, I just don't want to feel this sense of defeatedness. I'm so far from living out a lot of these Beatitudes. They're, they're not me. And by God's grace, I just, I need a lot of your help. And a lot of, w- of what these Beatitudes are, they're, they're, they're unlike us. And we just, that's a great place to start, to just acknowledge that, that, that to acknowledge there's so much growth for all of us in these places. And we start that by realizing that Jesus, King Jesus, is the fulfillment of all these Beatitudes. Since he became poor, ours is the wealth of the kingdom of God. Since he mourned with tears, we have the warmth of God's comfort. Since Jesus was willing to lose his life, you and I inherited eternal life. Since he cried out in thirst, As he hung on a cross in order to achieve our righteousness, our desire for righteousness can be satisfied. Since Jesus is merciful, we can receive mercy. Since he is pure in heart, you and I were given new hearts. Since he is the Prince of Peace, we don't have to be overcome with anxiety and worry. And since Jesus Christ was persecuted on a cross, we can have resurrection life and face any hardship this world has to offer. Because friends, this world is not your home. This world is not the end. And this is true because our king would humble himself. He would allow his name and his reputation to be dragged Through the mud, he would be mourned and spit upon and scoffed at by Roman soldiers. And he took the reviling and he took the pain and he took the insults and he didn't utter any kinds of evil, even though he was falsely accused. And he even endured the cross. And he hated the shame of the cross because he knew of the joy that was set before him. And friends, if this this is your hope, then there's nothing this world can offer you that's better than what's to come. Our persecution, and friends, it is light in comparison to what other brothers and sisters experience around the world. These are light and momentary afflictions, not worth comparing with the glory that's been revealed to all of us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you are exceptionally kind to us. You love us and meet us right where we are. You know that every single one of us comes into this room this morning in need of your grace, in need of a a reminder that you love us, that you're for us. And God, for the follower of you who's sitting in this room this morning and is weary and is discouraged and is tired and feels like they often walk in a a bubble and are silent and and just live a very quarantined life, Lord, would you you let them know that you're for them? There's nothing in this world that can defeat them and give them a sense of boldness and courage and conviction 
that in those moments where they're going to step out and talk to a friend about Jesus or a neighbor about Jesus or a, 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 a co-worker about Jesus, you'll be there for them. And God, I would just ask for those who are not followers of Jesus this morning that they'd realize this really is the blessed life. There is no greater blessing. There is no more happiness in life than a life that is found in you and is willing to give our life back to you so that we have new life in you. So if that's you today, today is the day, right now is the day to throw away your sin, to throw it upon the cross of Jesus, to take his righteousness and to receive the blessed life that he offers And if you're doing that, we would love to pray with you after service today. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.